Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralysed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Do speak to us through your word and make these eternal truths live to us as we look to Jesus tonight. For we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. We've just sung not to the powerful but to the poor he came and humble, hungry hearts were satisfied again. It's a fascinating truth that Jesus didn't come into the world for the righteous, but for sinners. That's what we read at the end of that passage from Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. It's not only fascinating, it sort of rubs contrary to what we normally, naturally think. We've got an impression that Christianity is for good people, or at least those trying to be good. Those who've got things together, but it's not at all what Jesus said. And and there's something in society that sort of looks with disdain at those who are struggling, who are having a difficult time. Anne Robinson famously for 10 years chaired a program, The Weakest Link, 
And she delighted to be able to say to people, you're the weakest link, goodbye. Okay, she may have given a wink at the end, but after hurting or devastating that panel of eight, nine people, whatever it was, a wink hardly was much consolation. There's something within us that, I don't know, feels we are better than others. But it's not the way Jesus wanted us to see ourselves. And certainly for those who think they're all right, what has Jesus for them? Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I really want to explore that theme because it's something I think if we're Christians, we can bask in, we can relish. And if we've never yet come to that point in our lives lives where we've asked Jesus to forgive us and to be our Lord and Saviour, what comforting truth this is. He came into the world for sinners. He said the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. In the book of Romans, written by the great apostle Paul, he says, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul wrote to his young friend Timothy, saying, this is a faithful saying, a worthy of everybody accepting that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds, of whom I am chief. When you begin to ponder a little bit about Jesus' teachings, you find that this, again, is one of the truths that he's constantly driving home. Remember the story about a shepherd. He had a hundred sheep, one of them got lost. So what did he do? He left the 99 sheep and he went for the one that was lost. Eventually he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders, he comes home rejoicing. This was a sheep that was lost, now I've found it. And then in Luke chapter 15, he gives a second parable, this time about a lost coin, a woman sweeping her house, looking everywhere to find the one coin that was lost. And then again, in the same chapter, Jesus tells that famous parable about the two brothers and the one father. And the younger son dares to suggest to his father that everything that one day he would inherit, he would like now. And so he takes it. And he goes off into a far country and he squanders all the money that was his on wild, riotous, immoral living. And then eventually, when he comes back to his senses, he thinks, I wonder if I could reckon on my father's character. Would he accept me? And so he goes back and he tries to work out what he's going to say to his father. But all he's prepared is, is, is of no value because as soon as his father spots him, and no doubt he's been looking for him longingly for weeks, months, maybe years. He runs and throws his arm around this wayward son who's returning and says, this my son, he was lost, but now he's found. It's as if he was dead. Now he's alive and begins to celebrate. Jesus driving home this great truth that he didn't come into the world for the good, but for those who have sinned. Think of his healings. He, he, he healed the blind. And he gave them sight. He, he healed the deaf and they heard. He healed the mute and they spoke. He, he healed the lepers and, and people with leprosy were really the lowest of the low. But he touched them. I, I think the original is, is conveying something a little bit deeper. He's saying he sort of freely handled them. He totally identified himself with these outcasts of society and he heals them. People were never the same after the Lord Jesus Christ had met them. And this, this paralyzed man lowered through the roof. You often think, I wonder what those people crowded round Jesus in this house thought as first of all, dust began to fall and then a, a gaping hole began to appear. And then these four men lowered through the roof this guy who's paralyzed and Jesus says to him son your sins are forgiven 
forgiven you and um, he gives him back his strength. I don't know whether you've ever been to the great Lowry exhibition of his art in Salford. I love Lowry's paintings. I think, I think they're profound. And I think the one that is my favourite is one that he simply called The Crippled. It's not a word we particularly use today, but he has Salford Market Square and he has these stick-like characters that, that Lowry loved. And yet all the people there are clearly disabled. But the way he paints them, he gives them such dignity. And I feel, isn't that true of the Lord Jesus? The riffraff, the rag ends of society, the waifs and strays, the people that no others would have time for. Jesus seems to make a beeline for, and he goes for them. In fact, in one of the parables, the parable of the, 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 the great feast that he puts on, uh, a master puts on, he, he invites the people you'd expect to come, they don't respond. So then he sends out the servants and says, all right, if they're not coming to my banquet... Go and find the, the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And, and then eventually he says, and go to the highways and hedges and find anybody. I want this feast that I prepared to be full and to be enjoyed. Jesus, coming for the people that we wouldn't naturally identify as those we'd think, yes, they're respectable, they're religious, they're going to be Christians. No, he came into the world for sinners. Think of some of the individuals he dealt with. A woman caught in the very act of committing adultery. The religious leaders of the day wanted us stoned to death. And Jesus says, all right, the one here who is without sin, let him throw the first stone at her. Of course, there was somebody there without sin. That was Jesus. But he didn't want to stone her to death and... Slowly, all these religious people, they they sort of drift away and leave just Jesus with this woman and the crowd to whom he was speaking earlier, watching. And he turns to her and says, does nobody condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, Now go and sin no more. Jesus, giving a woman like this another chance? But hadn't he done that with the woman of Samaria, the woman he meets at a well? She's had five husbands and now she's living with another guy. In fact, she goes out to get water from the well in broad daylight at the the, the height of the sun and the the blazing Mediterranean heat beating down on her. When nobody else would be there, they'd all be having their siesta. But, But she goes to get water and then she finds Jesus there and he begins to speak to her. And she recognized whatever else she'd got in life. She hadn't got that deep down spiritual satisfaction that comes from knowing God. And yet, Jesus meets with her and transforms her. And she goes running back to her city and says, Hey, come see a man who told me all that ever I did. Isn't this the Christ? I love the story of Zacchaeus. I don't know why, but Zacchaeus was a little man. And I've got a great sort of love for little people. It's just one of those things. And, and, And here's Zacchaeus. Unlike most little men who are absolutely trustworthy, Zacchaeus wasn't. He, 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 was, he was a tax collector. He had bought the right to tax, and everybody knew that that meant fleece his own people. He was hated. They wouldn't even let him into the synagogue to worship. Ah, if you're siding with the Romans to tax us, don't come and worship with us. But he'd heard about Jesus. And, and, and Jesus was coming to town. 
And he thought, I'd like to see him. And, and yet all the crowds are, are thronging Jesus. And this little man trying to push his way through. I sympathize. None of them have any time. They're all pushing him out. And trying to say, no, he can't get to Jesus at all. So what does he do? He climbs a, a little sycamore tree. And he looks down. And there is Jesus walking along. And it's as if he doesn't see any of them. But he does see Zacchaeus. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Come home. Come now. And Zacchaeus, come as you are. And he scrambles down, this little man. And, 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 and they go together to Zacchaeus' house and they dine. And they chat. And the crowd's all outside. You can imagine them sort of trying to peer in and see what's going on. And eventually Zacchaeus appears at the door and he says, um, he says to the crowd, have I robbed you? And perhaps sometimes I read between the lines of the Bible a little bit too much, but I read between the lines. I'm all, yeah, he's robbed me, all right. <laughs> I could tell him a tale or two. And there's this sort of murmur, murmur, murmur. Just to keep you awake. And, and let me say about the word murmur. It's a wonderful word. You, you know the word onomatopoeia? It means it sounds like it is. Well, murmur is one of those words. Just turn to your neighbour, will you, for a moment, and just say three times the word murmur. Ready, steady, go. Murmur, murmur. <laughs> Isn't it a great word? It's, it's one of those. And, and all this crowd would be murmuring, murmuring, murmuring. Yeah, he's robbed us. He's robbed us, all right. And then Jesus says to this, sorry, Zacchaeus says to this murmuring crowd, look, have I robbed you? I'll give you four times back what I stole from you. And half of all that I have, I'll just give away. Salvation had come to his heart and his home, and it even touched his pocket. But Jesus came for the sort of person that nobody else had any time for, Zacchaeus. And then Jesus is on a cross, and he's dying. He's dying, carrying on himself the sin of the world. But there are two thieves crucified next to him, one on either side. A howling mob of religious and political leaders all hurling abuse at Jesus. And these two men both began like that and then one of them changes. He thinks about God because he said, shouting across to his friend, don't you fear God? He thinks about his own sin because he shouts across and says, don't you fear God's sin? We also are in the same condemnation. We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. And then he thinks about Jesus because he shouts across still to his friend and says, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turned to Jesus. Mary was at the foot of the cross. John, St. John, was at the foot of the cross, but he didn't go via them to get to Jesus. He went directly to Jesus. And so may you and I. And he turns and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus on the cross turns to this dying criminal and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Here is a man who's saying, I deserve the capital punishment I'm getting. And yet Jesus turns to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because he came not to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. Heaven, the Bible teaches, is not a reward. Heaven is a gift. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see... 
Heaven is filled with sinful people who have been forgiven. And that is the most encouraging of all truths. The sin of that thief was laid on Jesus and he paid for it. And that man received the forgiveness which Jesus was purchasing. But can I drive home this point even more? Do you remember when Jesus was calling just 12 men, his disciples if you want, they were going to be with him for three years, he was going to teach them and train them, they were going to be his travelling companions in all his wanderings to witness what he was doing and to witness to the world about what he was doing. But who were these 12 disciples? Well, they were a real bunch of characters. One of them, Matthew, Levi, was a tax collector. His friends were all in the sleazy side of society. And when he left tax collecting, he puts on a party, as it were, invites Jesus, and all these characters are there. There was a man called Simon Peter. I don't know that we would have chosen Simon Peter to be one of our disciples. He was an outspoken, brash disciple. He, he was the one who opened his mouth and spoke and then thought later. His brain and his mouth were often completely disconnected. Now, I have to say, I don't want to be too critical of him because I'll meet him in heaven one day and I don't want to be saying, oh, I'm really sorry, Peter. He, he was a great man. He preached some great sermons, but wow, to begin with. Hmm. He even denied the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have two characters, brothers, James and John. They're nicknamed Sons of Thunder. They were, I've got to be a little bit careful here, but they were redheads. You know what I mean. I don't mean it literally, but, but they, they, they flashed with temper. And yet Jesus chose them. And then a man called Andrew. Unassuming, diffident, shy, Says very little, though it is interesting, every time we read of him in the Gospels, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. And Philip. Philip was, well, he was a little bit like a precocious five, six-year-old, always asking questions. And, and he always wanted to talk theology. I'm sure at times the other disciples turned to him and said, oh, Philip, can we just have a break? break? Can we just talk about the football for a while? Do you mind? But no, no, Philip was an earnest inquirer, loads of questions. And then Thomas, would we have chosen Thomas? We call him Doubting Thomas. Really, he was disbelieving Thomas. When Jesus had died and risen from the dead and some of the disciples had met with Jesus and they told Thomas, he said, no way, don't you understand? People do not die and rise from the dead. And they said, no, 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 we've seen the Lord. No, 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 unless, he said, I can put my fingers in the wounds in his hands and feet my fist in his side, there is no way I'm going to believe this. And then Jesus appeared to the ten plus Thomas and he falls on his knees and says, oh, my Lord and my God. Would we have chosen a man so full of questions and doubts and disbelief? And then Simon Zelotes, he was a political agitator. He was the sort of guy who had no respect for the authority. He's the sort of person who would speak to the police and call them plebs, and not deny it. <laughs> he was this sort of man, and yet Jesus, Jesus chose him. And then there was a man called Thaddeus. Have I got time? Let me tell you everything we know about Thaddeus. Ah, I just have. We don't know anything about Thaddeus. He was a total nondescript, but Jesus chose him. And then James the Less. What a name. 
Can't you imagine him with the educational psychologists and them saying, oh, look, don't, don't, don't see yourself like that. You're not really the less. You're okay, actually. And, and here's this guy, no self-esteem at all. And then there's a guy called Bartholomew, guileless Israelite, and then Judas Iscariot. What a motley bunch. But Jesus didn't come into the world for the righteous. He came into the world for sinners. Perhaps the greatest example of this is the greatest follower of the Lord Jesus Christ that there's ever been. A man called Saul of Tarsus. Here is Saul, religious, pious, devout, strict in his devotion, in his following, well, following religious rules, but a persecutor of those who followed Jesus. And then dramatically, on the road to Damascus, where he was going to round up Christians, dramatically, Jesus himself confronts Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? And then he adds the word that it didn't fall easily from his lips. Who are you, Lord? And the answer comes back, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. What a sinful man. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He describes himself as less than the least of all the saints. I always think that is terrible grammar. You cannot be less than the least of, but it's great theology. Less than the least of all the saints. The Apostle Paul, Saul changed his name to Paul, was to spend the next 30 plus years traveling around the then known world, preaching the gospel wherever he went, writing letters to those that he'd been with, explaining more about the Christian faith. Listen to these words that he wrote to Corinthian believers, new Christians. And no doubt they gathered one Sunday morning, I don't know, in a home, in a hall, whatever it was. And, and perhaps the leader of the church stood up and said, oh, we have had a letter from Paul. Oh, and the, the anticipation, the expectation. Let, let's hear what he had to say. And so he read this letter. We call it 1 Corinthians. And he got to chapter 6. And he read these words. Now imagine you're hearing these for the first time. And these words are written to you specifically. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually moral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And do you think those Corinthian Christians thought, "Hmm, we're not like that, we're okay? Uh Uh-uh, there would have been a shudder that went down their spine. Because as Paul continues, this is what he says. And that is what some of you were. So in that Christian congregation in Corinth, there were the sexually moral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. They were all there, but they'd come to trust Jesus Christ. That is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified, set aside for the service of God. You were justified, declared forgiven, declared just in the sight of God. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I I don't know whether I'm laboring this too much. 
But this is a great, great truth. It is the wonderful truth that Jesus didn't come into the world for the righteous. He came into the world for sinners. And do you know we all qualify? 500 years ago, little Thomas Bilney was a student of canon law in Oxford University. He was deeply, deeply concerned about his own sinfulness. So he went to his Catholic priest and said, what can I do? I'm so sinful. How could God ever accept me? And the priest said, well, you need to fast and pray. He fasted and prayed so much that one of these professors said, you're going to waste away, Master Bilney, unless you stop this. There was in those days a document going around, a translation of the Greek New Testament by Erasmus. It had been banned by the official church of the day, But Bilney thought, why shouldn't I be able to read this? And he bought one illegally, slipped it under his cloak and went back to his his college in, in Oxford. And he read and read until he came to the verse I quoted earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul adds, of whom I am chief. And this legal mind of Bilney said, no, 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 Paul, you are not the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm worse than you. But you say you're the chief. And Jesus died for you. Well, if Jesus died for you, the chief, then he must also have died for me. And Bilney there and then trusted Christ to forgive him and live within him. And he became a big player as he influenced Hugh Latimer a big player in the history of the Reformation and the history of the UK. In more recent years, Professor C.S. Lewis, the man who wrote the Narnia books, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the man who wrote Mere Christianity, professor eventually in Cambridge of medieval English literature. I think that sounds impressive, but actually when you think about it, medieval English literature... Any of us could become a professor of that because nobody knows anything about it. So just read a paragraph and you'll be up there. But anyway, we'll leave that for a moment. But here he is, this professor of medieval English literature, but struggling spiritually. He's been an atheist. Let me read what he wrote. You must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelented approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. He came into the world for sinners. But can I give you one final demonstration? But it's the key one to drive home this truth. The Lord Jesus never sinned. He was pure and perfect and undefiled. But we read that he set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. And Jerusalem for him meant death. He went to a place called Calvary. And there they beat him, scourged him, crowned his head with thorns which pierced his sensitive brow. They plucked out his beard, they spat at him, they mocked him and derided him. They made him on that beaten back, carry a rough, rugged Roman cross. 
and then eventually nails through his hands and feet, suspended him naked between heaven and earth, but the only covering he had was blood and spittle and dust and grime. Thieves on either side, this mob before him. And do you know, as he hung there, he carried on himself the sin of the world. The vilest things that hit the headlines and the respectable sins that just harden our hearts. The sins of yesterday and today and tomorrow. The sins I loathe myself for. And let me be honest, the sins which sometimes I love. The sins I regret, the sins I relish, the sins I remember, the sins I wish I I couldn't remember. All sin which cuts us off from God and would keep us out of heaven and would condemn us to hell forever. Our sin, yours, mine, God took and laid on his darling son and hanging there, he paid for it. He came into the world not for the righteous, but for sinners. And when he'd fully paid for sin, he cried out, Finished! And he'd finished the work he was born to do. And he did it out of love for such as you and such as me. And it seems to me the most natural reaction to that is not to say, okay, I ignore it as a fact of history, but I'm just moving on. Not to say, oh, later, sometime, maybe when I'm older, then then I'll trust Christ. I'll get my my name, my story in the next edition of Sagas. Uh Uh-uh. If God is God, if he has loved us enough to come into the world, to go to the cross, to carry our sins and die for us, if he was buried and rose from the dead, if this living Jesus says, look, come to me, find forgiveness, find new life, surely the most natural thing is to respond. If you're sick, you go to a doctor. I have never been to the doctor and said, doctor, I thought I'd just make an appointment to tell you I'm fine. <laughs> I've never done that. But I've been sometimes and said, doctor, I'm concerned about this. We don't go to the Lord Jesus and say, see how good I am? Because we'd fool nobody and certainly not him. But he wants us to come and say, oh, Lord Jesus, I am sinful. I'm sorry. With your help, I want to turn from it. Please forgive me. Become my Lord, my Savior, my friend, and give me the strength and the desire to follow you. And do you know, he will. He delights to, he loves to, he'll run to you and make you his. When Peter was questioning me, he asked how I became a Christian. I prayed a prayer all those years ago. And I would like to close tonight by praying a very similar prayer and inviting you to pray this prayer with me. I say inviting, that's too weak. I I would beg you, I would yearn for you, I would urge you to pray this prayer with me. I'm going to pray it slowly so that you've got time to repeat the words in your mind and heart as a definite, deliberate prayer of trusting the Lord Jesus. And if you pray it with me, I'd like you to do one other thing. I'll be in the the church centre across the way, I'd like you please just to give me on a piece of paper your name and ordinary address, postal address. And in the next couple of days, I'll write to you and I'd like to send you some helps to 
just get you started reading the Bible and starting to grow as a Christian. Do you know, this could be the, the night you were born for, the night you get right with God. And if you're a fresher, especially, what a wonderful way to start your years here in Sheffield to say, right, I'm going to ask the Lord Jesus to be my Lord, my Savior, my friend, to take me through these years and to be with me forever. So will you pray this prayer? Remember, he's not looking for your goodness. The only thing we give to him is a load of sin and ask him to forgive it and then our lives for him to rule and guide as a gracious God. Will you pray this with me now? I'll pray slowly so you can make this prayer your own. Dear God, thank you that you know everything there is to know about me. I'm sorry for my sin. With your help, I want to turn from it. Thank you that Jesus died for me. And thank you that he rose again from the dead. Please forgive me. Come and live within me. Become my Lord, my Savior, my friend, and help me to follow you. Thank you for hearing this prayer, which I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 May God bless you. Please do give me your name and address. I won't come knocking on your door or anything like that, but I will write to you, and I think you'd find that helpful. Peter. Peter.